You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you think about your financial plans, are you diversified? After the year we had in 2022, it is a really good question. Is it time you rebalanced or made other adjustments? Help make sure your investing strategy is right for you. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I recognize what's happening in my body and I'm feeling all this bad feeling. So let me just be present with it instead of rushing, busying, finding something to do to make all the bad feeling stay suppressed. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So I'll admit it, I often feel pressure to always be doing whether that's working or going to the gym or prepping a project or just getting ready for the next day. I have a little bit of a hard time sitting still. I'm even a little bit of a perfectionist about some things, particularly those things that are work-related. But in my defense, it is not just me. In fact, I suspect it may be many of you. According to some research from McKendree University, women are more likely to be perfectionists than men. In corporate workplaces, 33% of women have high perfectionism scores compared to just 21% of men. And the problem with that is that we suffer more stress and lower self-esteem as a result. In fact, post-COVID, women's stress levels are at a 10-year high. And it's no wonder when we are expected to be the perfect moms, to keep the house clean, to climb the ladder in our careers, to take care of aging relatives, and of course, look great while doing all of it. While we have to acknowledge that it is difficult to overcome all of these outside stressors that take a toll on our day-to-day well-being, it's not impossible. My guest today is going to tell us how we can break away from those societal pressures of feeling like we have to be the perfect daughter, the best wife, the smartest investor. Elise Lunen is a New York Times bestselling author and author of the new book on our best behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. She is also the host of the podcast, Pulling the Thread, where she interviews cultural luminaries about the biggest questions of today. And for those of you who don't know Elise, she spent a lot of her career climbing the ranks at women's magazines, spending over a decade at Lucky, Time Out, Condé Nast Traveler. Eventually, she landed a job as the chief content officer at Goop. She was Gwyneth Paltrow's second hire, where she shaped the editorial vision of the brand that made wellness lifestyle cool. Goop has faced a recent 
backlash of sorts for putting a hefty price tag on what it takes to achieve this sort of perfection. And we will talk about all of that as well. Elise, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. There's so much that I want to dive into today, including the incredible title of your book. But I want to start with the very first line. You wrote, in 2019, I hyperventilated for an entire month. And this, by the way, was when you were at a high point in your career. What happened? What was going on in your life when this started? Yeah. So when people think of hyperventilation, they think of breathing into a bag. I think maybe Hollywood made that happen. But for me, chronic hyperventilation is a much more subtle anxiety disorder where my lungs are actually full of oxygen, and yet I have this sensation that I can't take a full, deep breath. And it started in my 20s when I was an editor at Condé Nast, most likely a potent stew of stress. And it had really reached a point where I couldn't really get it under control and I would do it every day for months on end. And it's very exhausting besides feeling like you're dying. I knew I wasn't dying. I had been armed with enough information to know what was happening. But every day you're yawning, you look sleepy and tired, and you're consumed inwardly by anxiety. And I think that I had convinced myself that I would reach if I was just kept going, I would escape these feelings of not being enough, not being good enough. I would get to some point in my career, some finish line where I would feel safe and secure and all of these symptoms would disappear. And I just hit a wall where I realized I can't outrun this. I'm not outrunning this. It is getting worse. And I have to understand what it is that is sitting on my chest, making me feel like I'm going to die. Sounds awful. It sounds just just awful. And I got to say, I'm not surprised that maybe it started when you were at Condé Nast. I interviewed for a job at Condé Nast coming out of college. I didn't get it. I ended up at Working Woman Magazine down the street. But we were literally the building next door. And I used to watch those women walk into Condé Nast looking so perfect yeah. and think, oh my God, thank God I do not have to go into that building. I didn't even have to walk in and it was terrifying to me. And look, I talked about perfectionism at the top of the show. When we talk about striving to be good, striving to be perfect, it, it's not one of the seven deadly sins. So how does it connect? Yeah. So the thesis of the book is that women are conditioned to be good. I put that in quotation marks because it's an externally adjudicated idea of what it is to be a good woman. This isn't about an internal idea of goodness. And men are conditioned for power. And you think about it, and the worst thing you can do to a woman is to harm her reputation, to accuse her of being unkind, an uncaring, unloving, bad mother, a mean coworker, whatever it may be. We struggle to recover from any sort of reputational harm. Meanwhile, men can do all sorts of things. They can be convicted of crimes, and if they're powerful, we still revere them. But this idea of goodness is so pernicious. And a good woman in our culture is a woman who is tireless, puts other people's needs above her own, certainly above her wants. She doesn't really have wants. She has no appetites or desires. She never gets upset about any of it. She's just a good, quote unquote, good servant to the world in many ways. 
And obviously, we're pushing past all of these restrictions, but my book argues that they're still in us, that this is the long tail of patriarchy. Growing up, I heard the word patriarchy, and I was like, I don't even, what is that? And and who is behind it? And where's Oz? And who is controlling it? And to me, it became this boogeyman. And also, I think we're conditioned to believe that this is how it's always been, and this is how it's supposed to be. Men are hunters. Women hide in caves. And there is who we are. And then there's a story we're told about how we should behave and who we are. And that's what I really wanted to sort of explore And the ways in which being a good woman has become such a pernicious ideal that we police in ourselves and then police in each other. Where did it come from? And I actually, I trace it back to the seven deadly sins and it maps to those. And there's a reason if you want to get into the history and origin, but they're not, the sins weren't in the Bible. They're a cultural concept. And this is how culture is transmitted. We whisper it into each other's ears. Yeah, and I think the idea that it's not just in us, it's what everybody else like us expects of us is so powerful and so ultimately damaging. We don't have to go through all the seven deadly sins, but where do you find the closest connections? Where does it map closest for you and how have you pushed back against it? So I'll list them really quickly because I wasn't raised in a religious household, and I think we sort of think we know them. And then when you actually look at them, you're like, oh, wow. They're essentially a map to being human. Sloth, envy, pride, greed, gluttony, lust, and anger. And there was actually an eighth that was dropped, sadness, which I include because I argue that it is very much lodged in the minds of men, that it's a weakness to feel our feelings, and we tend to cut boys off from their feelings, which I think was very wounding. And then these wounding boys become wounding men. And I think this fear of sadness is one of the primary symptoms is toxic masculinity. So for me, I opened the book with sloth because I think for all women, you opened with it. It is so accessible, this idea that there's always more to be done. There's more doing. We're never doing enough. And this aversion for rest, or not an aversion, but this belief that we maybe don't deserve it yet. We haven't done enough. And again, going to this idea of the boogeyman, my husband pointed out to me, he was like, since we've been married, which has been a minute, you haven't watched more than 20 minutes of a show or a movie with me without getting up to do something. Sometimes I get my computer and I'm just clickety-clacketing and taking care of stuff or I'm in the kitchen or I need to start laundry. It doesn't matter. It's just this like compulsion that I have to go and quote unquote do something productive that I can't just sit there. And the social science all supports this. How much more women are doing both at work and at home. And sure, maybe some of us are married to men who have very specific demands and requirements, but that doesn't seem so modern. That's not how my husband is. He's not demanding five meals a day, and I'm the primary breadwinner. But I, me, I'm the one who's insisting that this is how it needs to be, and that the floor needs to be spotless, and the laundry needs to be done, and the fridge needs to be full of nutritious food. This is me, and I had to write this book to recognize it. I'm shaking my head, but I have this running dialogue with my husband 
where he mentions something that needs to get done around our house. And I say, okay, I got it. And he's like, no, I didn't say you need to do this. I said, this needs to be done. He's like, I'll do it. I'll go to the groceries. But I don't hear it that way. I hear you need to do this. And so, look, I grew up, as you did, in women's magazines and in magazines in general. And I think in some ways, we fostered a lot of this. We wanted to make sure it's all perfect, and and, and that was expected of us by the outside world. But we also have bought into all of these magazines that want us to live our best lives and become the best versions of ourselves. Talk about working in that culture and working at Goop. Where do you think we crossed the line? Where do you think things went too far? Oh, man, it's so big. It's so cultural, right? So it's bigger than any company or any brand. And so much of it has this good intent, right? You think about Glamour Magazine and some of those taglines. You can do anything. You can be anything. Like all positive messaging. I think for a lot of women, it's like, how do we reach into that while not abandoning this? And this is why I love the construct of the book when we think about sins, right? Because you can sort of take any single one of them and then start to understand culturally where we went wrong. So sloth, where we started with this idea of like, you can kill it in the boardroom, kill it in the bedroom, kill it at the PTA meeting. And a lot of the women that I know who are attempting to do that, what's happened, and I think a lot of it is social media as well, is that instead of saying, okay, I have a board meeting, I'm going to be at work late every day this week, I'm going to need a lot of rest, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be as present for my kids, I have two small boys. Instead, my instinct is, well, I need to compensate for the time that I'm spending at the office with like an equal effort at home. So therefore, I'm going to parent so hard this weekend. That birthday party that I owe you is going to be like amped because of my (laughs) own ancillary guilt. And so what I see happening is like in this ephemeral fake fallacy of work-life balance, we're just ratcheting it up on each other. And now it's social, right? It's just what we see of each other, the way that how your kitchen looks and my kitchen doesn't look like that. And look at that birthday party and these snapshots that we share with each other that are not necessarily of bad intent, but I think it creates a lot of anxiety for all of us in terms of how we are or are not measuring up and how we need to compensate. And then you can look at gluttony and you think about the perniciousness of beauty standards that have been subjugated on women and evolved and changed. And there's obviously a complex stew there between women's magazines, fashion, Hollywood, influencers, all of it to sort of create this, again, another distortion factory that's very confusing. We're a money show, so I'm interested in greed. How and where do you find that creeping in the most? Well, I think... You might disagree with me, but I feel like money was like one of the things that was barely discussed in women's magazines. I don't disagree. It was always in the back. Maybe they gave it a page and a third if we were lucky. But 
the whole magazine industry is built on consumerism. And so in the book, I make this argument that money's not really for us. It's base and gross to talk about money. You should never talk about your salary. It's weird to flex about money in any way. But it is your job to spend. And you are the CEO of the household. I remember this acutely after 9-11, George Bush saying, shop, please shop. The economy is in trouble. Like, it is your patriotic duty to go out there and buy things. And certainly all the messaging about buying is almost universally directed at women. So it's this double sword of money's not really for you. This wealth gap is insane, right? You shouldn't hoard money. You shouldn't be greedy, et cetera. But make sure you're spending. And so to me, there's a discrepancy there. Instead of saying, actually, shore up, make sure that you have enough. Let's quantify what that is. That for me was a huge thing, was this idea of enough. And not being entirely financially illiterate, but like awash in my own anxiety about money and that I would never have enough. And then when pressed, well, what does that even mean? Can you actually like write that down? To me, that was the most relieving thing I did. I made a spreadsheet of needs and a spreadsheet of wants. And I know that sounds like a budget. It was slightly more spiritual than that, but not really. It was pretty practical. But to me, to actually identify it and write it down so that enough became a figure that I could work to meet was very relieving for me. And then to actually interrogate my wants and to say, I don't really want anything. I know I've been cultured to think that I need and want a new bag, but I don't really want one, actually, when I think about it. Right. Or I don't really care that much. I don't care. that. And what's so interesting about that exercise, which, by the way, far too few people do, is that you're totally right about it. It is incredibly anxiety relieving. Because once you put the numbers on a page and you see what the numbers are, maybe you'll find that you actually need to work a few more years in order to get where you want to be. But maybe you'll find that you're on track. Maybe you'll find that you actually are doing fine. A lot of people find that they're doing fine. And they also find, as you did, all of these little areas where they're mindlessly spending and don't care about the stuff so they could more easily stop, which is also a bit of a relief when you realize you don't have to do all of this to keep up. That is a fantastic strategy. I want to talk about how you broke free. And in a recent newsletter, you talked about how after you published the book, even though it was garnering so much positive attention, again, you felt like you were drained of energy. So what happened there? Do you think that this cycle of goodness is something that we're doomed to repeat? Or is there a way out? Yeah. So I do think that breaking free for me extreme act of therapy times eight. I had to interrogate all of these things in my life in a way that I was not, I've ghostwritten 12 books. So, and I thought I'll deliver this in a year and we're off to the races. Well, writing this book was hard and required a lot of intense, 
excavation. And in many ways, the book is about shadow. It's all the things that are human that come up in us that we repress. All of these very basic sexual energy, desire for more, food. These are very basic human impulses that many of us have been conditioned to sort of repress. So I had to like go dig around. And writing it and then sort of working through the book with my editor was a lonely experience. What's been really exciting as the book has come out is to see it resonate with so many women because I knew, I knew that what I was feeling was a shared collective story and that I could name these feelings that were very present for all of us, but give them a structure and give them a house because we're so used to sort of talking about them in silos, women and money, women and food, women and anger. And so I wanted to bring them all together and all the incredible sort of academic research. There are so many amazing thinkers in all of these worlds. So putting them all together, and this is how it shows up in our lives. So watching it go out into the world and then to have women talk about it and to be able to talk about with other women has been incredibly relieving and the beginning of starting to interrupt these cycles because that was the other goal, was to identify the framework so that then you could say, oh, wait, 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 this is me and greed. This is me and gluttony. I understand what's happening in my body. It's very uncomfortable. I need to just be present, and we can help each other do that. So I think this is communal work. So I do have hope. And yeah, that newsletter, I'm actually a pretty introverted person. I like to be exactly where I am right now, which is in the corner of my bedroom. And then you experience all this energy this external energy. And so I wrote about it as feeling it's kind of like a an externally created manic depressive episode, a bipolar episode, because you get so much energy that's like flooding and then it slows down and then you're disoriented. I just felt very disoriented and was like trying to find myself again after so much energy and attention. So I want to talk about those tactics, those practical tips for feeling like it's coming on, recognizing that it's coming on, and stopping it in its tracks or interrupting the cycle or however you want to put it. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you take a look at your financial plans, are you diversified the way you want to be? And when is the last time you rebalanced your portfolio or made sure you're invested in the assets and allocation appropriate for you? Look, we all need to make tweaks and adjustments to our financial lives, sometimes small ones, sometimes big ones. Thankfully, Edelman Financial Engines can help no matter what change your money might need most. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to learn more and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. We are back with Elise Luna, and we're talking about her new book, On Our Best Behavior. All right. So whether we have gone down a rabbit hole on Instagram or whether we're just feeling like we had one too many lime-flavored tortilla chips over the weekend, as I am regretting right now. There are times in our lives where we just have to get in front of it, and it's really, really hard. How have you encouraged people to do that? So, so much of it is just stopping and paying attention to the voices in your head and that shaming and policing. So, 
I was at my mother-in-law's house and she buys this thing called pub cheese. I don't know exactly what I it know is, pub but cheese. it's delicious. Yes, it, okay. <laughs> so I think I ate three containers of pub cheese. And so it's being conscious, being aware of that voice in my head that is like, that was bad. You need to be good. Or you're being lazy or you haven't produced enough, you need to go and do something. So part of it is just actually saying, instead of just unconsciously or subconsciously letting all these voices run our lives, which is what I was doing, all this internal policing and shaming around, you're bad, now you need to be good. For me, the pattern interruption just starts with like, oh, this is happening. I recognize what's happening in my body and I'm feeling all this bad feeling. So let me just be present with it instead of doing what I tend to do, which is rushing, busying, just finding something to do to make all the bad feeling stay suppressed. And so it's just actually listening and saying, okay, let's let it up. Let's let it up. Because I think the instinct when we suppress, repress is one, it stays in us. And two, then we start projecting it onto other people and often other women. That's really what the chapter on envy is about. Actually, elaborate on that because I think you're right. We are harder on other women than we are on men. We just are. Yes. And all the social science supports it. And we then justify it by saying things like, well, I just expect more from women. We sort of buy into this perfectionism, good woman thing again by saying, oh, I'm absolutely justified in being harder on women because women are good. They should be good. They should be held to the standard of goodness. So I sort of came into the book, actually, through envy. I write about how it's the gateway to the other sins. And it happened during a conversation that I had many years ago with psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb, who wrote, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Love, Lori. Love, love. Brilliant. And there was this small moment in her book where she just said that she tells her clients to pay attention to their envy because it tells them what they want. And for whatever reason, that just stuck in my mind, and I couldn't stop thinking about it because I was like, wait, what do I even want? I had no idea. I was on such sort of like achieving, be good, auto drive that I didn't know what I wanted. And so I stopped to sort of interrogate that in my own life and had this theory that because women are conditioned to subjugate our wants to other people's needs. And it's such a strange concept, right, to see a woman say, well, I want that, and I want this, and I want this, and I deserve this. It's not very feminine in our culture. So there's not a lot of modeling. I couldn't articulate it. And then I had to wonder, when I saw a woman who had something or was doing something that I wanted for myself, was I even actually able to identify it, or was I deprecating her to make myself feel better. And is that, my theory was like, that's when you hear, I just don't like her. She rubs me the wrong way. Who does she think she is? Her book really wasn't that good. To me, I was like, I have a feeling that that is all my suppressed envy. And that instead of distilling it, diagnosing it, using it as information, oh, this woman is pushing on a dream I have for myself. I am just projecting it onto her and saying, I don't, I don't like her. And maybe that's what a lot of us are doing. Boy, fascinating. I got to say, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone was my favorite book of the pandemic. I read it. I listened to it. It was just an amazing, amazing book for anybody who's interested in therapy and how therapy really, really works. 
As we wrap up here, one of the things that we find ourselves doing, many of us, is throwing money at the problem. When the problem is this desire to be perfect or to fill up a hole that we're feeling because we're sad or many of these other sins, I think if we have money and sometimes even when we don't, we throw money at the problem. And in part, we do it because wellness companies and magazines and social media sell us this promise that we can buy these things that is incredibly hard to deliver on. How do you think about that? Yeah, I certainly agree. And I think it's this, anything feels easier in those moments of internal distress than sitting with our distress and being present with ourselves. And so the instinct to buy a tool, a fix, whatever it is, is so strong. And again, going back to that needs and wants list, I write in the book about being on this press trip in India and I had this sort of compulsive shopping habit. I worked at a magazine about shopping, but this predated this. I would find any gift shop as a kid to just try and spend my allowance, like just this compulsive need to buy things. And when I was at Lucky, I would justify it because I had, I used to see you at the Today Show. I did all this morning TV and I needed all this fast fashion. I had no idea. It never connected to me, the environmental destruction, et cetera. It just created this feeling of wealth for me by having this full closet, particularly at a company like Condé Nast, where I didn't really fit into the sample size. So I needed to shop. So I'm in India and there's this gift shop that has this incredible jewelry. And it's this Ayurvedic wellness a hotel with this incredible jewelry. And like every day after the treatments, I would go and look at these pieces of jewelry and text my mom and be like, I want to buy this for you for your birthday. And I was in my mind justifying. I'm like, I didn't pay for this trip. So like my mom was like, I don't want anything. Stop. Like I'll never be able to wear the jewelry that I have. And I went to this lecture while I was there with this 18-year-old who was came from the Vedanta Institute. And Vedanta, it's the Ayurvedic books of wisdom, et cetera, like very modern philosophy that's ancient. And essentially, he was, we always want the thing until we have it. And once we get the thing, we want the bigger, better thing. And whatever you buy will never satisfy you. And... I was bored at lunch one day and started going to these lectures, and he just broke a spell. I can't explain it. I just stopped wanting. I was like, oh, right. That's why I have so much jewelry that I've never worn. But I will promise to anyone listening, you can break it. I had to go shopping for this book tour, and I hadn't shopped for myself in years. I just have lost Somehow, I broke that spell, but it is strong. I think that's the key. Whichever of these spells is holding you captive, right? Yeah. That you can break it. You just kind of have to take a step back and think about it, right? You have to see it. You have to want it. You have to really want it. And then if there's something you want more, if it's time, if it's peace, if it's calm, 
right? It makes it easier to give up the other thing. Well, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for having me and talking about it. Of course. What's next for you? I like these really big ideas. I like to boil the ocean and pull hundreds of different books and teachers and theories into one thing. I'm really interested in good and bad still and these cultural ideas and the way that we assign them to each other and how polarized we are. I just want to write books and have a newsletter and host my podcast. That was also part of the needs and wants exercise to actually be like, actually, this is what I want. Just this, which is a lot. It is. It is. (laughs) Sounds good to me. Elise, where can our listeners find you? So you can find me on Pulling the Thread, which is my weekly podcast, or I have a substack, elisluna.substack.com, or on Instagram at Elise Lunan. And as mentioned, the book is On Our Best Behavior. Thank you so much. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, hosted by CNBC's Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And we are back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining us for this segment. Hi, Jules. Hello. How are you? I am pretty good. I am in that mode of panic where I'm going on a trip and I'm not exactly sure that I have the right footwear because the temperature is going to be about 20 degrees cooler than it is here. And I haven't switched out my closet from summer to fall and That's what I woke up thinking about at 4 o'clock this morning. I am ready for fall. Forget summer. I'm over it. You're done? I'm done. Yeah. I get to that point where I'm ready to put on sweaters, and then I put on a sweater, and I go outside, and it's still 80 degrees, and I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I'm in that point right now. We've got a bunch of questions today. I just want to dive right on into them. All right. Let's do it. Our first question today comes to us from Judy. She writes... My thanks to the Her Money team for all the support and education. I've learned a lot and I no longer feel alone in either my lack of knowledge of money things or in my willingness to try new strategies. So here's the question. I'm about to turn 72 and RMDs are on the horizon. My RMD will be about $30,000, but I plan a QCD, that's Qualified Charitable Distribution, of $5,000 to local charities. So my question... What do I do with the rest? I have a pension and Social Security for living expenses, although it is getting tight with inflation. So I want to save the money somewhere safe. 
Half of my friends say high-yield savings accounts and stay in cash. About a quarter of my friends just say put it in a brokerage account in an index fund. And the last 25% have no more idea than I do. I am thinking that U.S. bonds might be a good place for the $25,000 with the high interest rates. But I live in California, and there is a state as well as federal tax. When I've searched online, the articles tend to be written like I'm slightly stupid. I know this is a wonderful problem to have, but do you have some guidelines? Should I pull all the RMD at once or set up a dollar-cost averaging arrangement? And on the other question, if I turn 72 this year, do I need to pull the money out this year and pay the tax in 2023, or do I pull the RMD in 2024 and pay the tax in 2024? All the directions I've read are clear as mud. Thanks so much. Judy, that's a loaded question. It it is a loaded question. And for the clear as mud part, I totally get this. First of all, they are changing the rules in real time about RMDs, which, by the way, stands for required minimum distributions. It's the amount that you are forced to pull out of your retirement accounts once you hit the age keeps changing. But in 2023, once you hit age 73. So let's deal with the age part of your question first, and then we can deal with the what to do with your money part. As for the articles that are making you feel like you're slightly stupid, you're not slightly stupid. This stuff is just really, really confusing. So For the age part, beginning in 2023, the SECURE Act raised the age that you have to start taking required minimum distributions from 72 to 73. So if you reach age 72 in 2023, the required beginning date for your first RMD is not going to hit until next year. So you can delay. You don't have to worry about that. The second question that you asked is what to do with the money. I think you're better off with just a high-yield savings account at this point. When I'm looking at the returns on bonds at this point, really, they're pretty close. And With bonds, we know there is some risk. There's not as much risk as there is with stocks, of course, but there is some risk. And with a high-yield savings account, there is no risk or a money market fund. So I would look to that first. As far as the issue of taking the money out in a lump sum or in monthly allotments, kind of the opposite of dollar cost averaging the way that we put it in. Each of them really has its benefits. Your money has the most potential to grow. Research shows if you take the entire minimum distribution at the end of each calendar year, but your personal budgeting may actually be easier if you take it in 12 monthly pieces. And finally, on the QCD, the Qualified Charitable Distributions or the Qualified Charitable Donations, this is a really, really great benefit that a lot of people don't know about. It allows individuals who are 
over seventy and a half to donate up to a hundred thousand dollars total to charity directly from their IRA. And the benefit of this is that it lowers your RMDs because it counts toward them. So you don't have to pay the taxes on the money that goes directly to the charity. And it helps the charity too, because if you think about it, if you took the money out and then you paid the taxes, you would have less to give to the charity than you do by giving it directly from within your retirement account. So all in, I think really, Judy, you have your act together incredibly well with all the moving pieces that are in play. And I'd go high yield savings versus treasuries at this point, but just keep your eye on the ball. And Julia, this is this is why we have financial advisors. I mean, there's so many different things, and particularly for somebody who is in retirement or entering retirement, I'm such a fan of a pre-retirement checkup with a financial advisor just so you can get all of these pieces into place. Yeah. Well, I'm glad Judy came here. Absolutely. We've got one more. All right. Let's get into it. Our next question comes from Kathy. She writes, Hi, Jean. I've been a devoted listener of your podcast for about a year. You finally had an email from a listener a lot like me. I'm widowed with two children in their 30s. I helped my daughter and new husband buy a house during the pandemic. My stock portfolio is in excess of $2 million, $1 million in passive real estate, a small IRA of 100000 and a good amount of cash. All of my earnings are from my investments, about 200000 a year. I also have a $500,000 mortgage at 3.5%. I have two men as investment advisors that have done well by me. Question. I'm looking for a woman advisor. My stock portfolio are 90s equities. My stock advisor says my stocks are paying dividends regarding a market. Should I take 500000 out and buy CDs or pay off my mortgage? I'm worried about the market. Many thanks, Kathy. So again, two parts here. Kathy, if you are worried about the market taking the the 500,000 out to buy CDs at current rates might be a decent move. I don't necessarily think that I would pay off the mortgage depending on the interest rate that you are holding on that mortgage. Right now if you've been watching stories on real estate, we know that we've got very very little supply. On the market. And the reason that there's very little housing supply is the people who are sitting with mortgages at two and three quarters percent or three percent are thinking, gosh, I do not want to give up this loan. This loan is as close to free money as I am ever going to get because if I took my money and I invested it, I could do a lot better than the three percent ish that that mortgage is costing me. When you think of an interest rate, you have to think of an interest rate equal to the return on your money. So if you're comparing a mortgage at 3% versus an investment at 5%, like you can get on a CD right now, that CD is going to be better, especially because a lot of the tax advantages for having a mortgage have evaporated. But I wouldn't do any of it without having a plan. And 
what you're telling me and what I'm hearing is that you don't like the people that you're talking to. You want to talk to a woman. And if you feel like you want to talk to a woman, then you should talk to a woman. I feel like there are good male advisors. There are good female advisors, just like there are good male doctors and there are good female doctors. But if you're going to be more comfortable asking your questions, explaining your situation, being honest because the person that you're talking to is a woman, then go get one. And here are a couple of different ways that you can do that. First of all, our podcast is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. If you go through the process with them and you tell them you want a woman advisor, they will get you a woman advisor. And I've met enough of their advisors over the past few years of working with them to have a lot of faith in them. The other place that I would send you is a service called WealthRamp. WealthRamp is a matching service for financial advisors. It's run by a woman named Pam Kruger, who was the former host of Money Track on PBS. She has vetted all of her advisors personally, and I've helped people find advisors through her network through the years as well. But I think find the advisor first, make the moves second, and you'll be on your way. And Juliet, let me ask you, I mean, look, I, (laughs) it's funny. I have all women doctors. Right. I have a male financial advisor and I'm comfortable with both. Do you think you'd be more comfortable talking to a woman about your money than talking to a man? Probably, but I also think it's kind of like how I view a therapist. I prefer a female therapist, but I have girlfriends who prefer male therapists. Like, I think it's personal. I also think forget the gender. It just comes down to the conversation and how you vibe with the person, for lack of better words. Yeah. Trial and error, right? Right. And I just think that you have to be able to be really open and honest with whoever the person is on the other side of the table. I feel that way about the male financial advisor that I'm working with now. But I've also fired male financial advisors in the past because... I didn't feel that way. So I think you're right. Very personal. Thank you so much, Jules. No problem. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. If you've got any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. Just send them to us by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com. And now we are going to take a quick break. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we are back with your money tip of the week. Did you know that many women are chronically underinsured? Only 47% of the 131 million adult women in the U.S. have life insurance. That's compared with 58% of men. If you're thinking that you're one of them and you're not sure where to begin, 
For starters, there are two basic types of life insurance. There's term and there's permanent. Term is essentially just a death benefit. It has a fixed price for a certain period of time called the term, and then it expires. For this reason, because it's simpler, it is the best way for most people to get the amount of coverage that they need for the least amount of money. Permanent insurance, on the other hand, can last a lifetime as long as you keep your policy current. Unlike term insurance, it also has an investment component that enables you to accumulate cash value for your future or, more likely, your family's future. We have all the details, and there are a lot of them, on how to choose the life insurance that's right for you at hermoney.com. Check it out. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Elise Lunin for giving us actionable tips to overcome our perfectionist tendencies. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, hosted by CNBC's Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.